my name's Jeremiah. I'm the pastor of Seven Mile Road, Houston. If we've not met, uh, welcome. Glad to have you. Uh, and you are in the auditorium of Together for the City. Together for the City is a collaborative effort here in the center of the city that exists that the, the church would be one and the city would be made whole. So on this campus, we have four different churches that are sharing this space, and tonight we're even hosting alongside of Apostles Houston, which is a church just down the street as well. And what we're trying to do is create a space where the different organizations, different churches, different nonprofits are coming together for the wholeness of the city. We want to see the church be one and the city made whole. And this event tonight and tomorrow in, in large part is around the wholeness and the health of our city. The church historically has been uh, good at grace or good at truth, but the miracle of Jesus is that he came in the fullness of both. And so this weekend, we're engaging with some difficult topics and a difficult cultural moment in hopes that we as the people of God would live into the miracle of Jesus that is the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth. And, and I trust that our our guide this weekend will be as much a gift to you as he has been to me and those who've been interacting with him over the last few days. So welcome. We're delighted to have you here with us. What I'm going to do for us is I'm going to pray over our time, and then I'm going to hand this microphone off to my good friend David Cumby, uh, the pastor there at Apostles Houston, and he's going to introduce our speaker for the weekend. So do you please join me as I pray for our time. So gracious God and Father, we thank you. We thank you for the ways that you love us and that you have pursued us in and through your son, Jesus. We're asking tonight that you would be pleased to pour out your spirit on this space to encourage your people, strengthen your people, equip your people, God, that we would see more clearly your character and the way that the, the beauty of your character informs and touches every area of our lives and of culture. And so we're just asking that you be present, that we would be a touched and transformed people as a result of our attendance this weekend. We look forward to what you have for us. We thank you in advance for the ways that you intend to care for us through your servant, Sam. So we bless you. We thank you, God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. David, how about you come on up and, and introduce Sam for us? All right. Well, again, welcome and good evening. As Jeremiah said, my name is David Cumbie. I'm the lead pastor at Apostles Houston, which is just up uh, the street. Uh, before I introduce Sam, I did want to just take a quick moment to explain kind of what to expect uh, so tonight, uh, Sam is going to speak to us uh, basically kind of in two sessions. We'll have one session, then we'll have a 10-minute break, and then we'll have another uh, talk. And then after that, we'll have time for some Q&A. That's one of the goals of our time tonight and tomorrow is to create space for your questions. And so uh, to that end, we've set up a couple ways you can do that. And one of them is using an app called Pigeonhole. And so we've got information. I think we can throw it up here on the slide uh, and so I just encourage you, if you want to go ahead and grab this using the QR code or uh, type into your browser, pigeonhole.at, and then just use the password Jesus, um, that will uh, give you access to ask questions. And uh, we want to go ahead and give you this information because I know a lot of times as we're listening to someone talk, you may have a question that pops up in your head uh, and you can capture it right then and you can add those um, to the list at any point. You can also see what questions other folks are asking and then you can kind of, um, uh, kind of check that you also have that question and it'll kind of help give us a sense of what people are wanting to know in the room. So I'll share that again, but want to go ahead and give, uh, give you a heads up on that. Um, so I am very, very excited uh, tonight to um, introduce our speaker for the weekend, Sam Alberry. Uh, Sam is a pastor based in Nashville, a globally recognized apologist and speaker. He has written extensively on issues of sexuality in the Christian faith. His books include Is God Anti-Gay, Seven Myths About Singleness, and What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, all of which are available on our book table uh, tonight, which is right through this door. I encourage you to stop by there tonight or tomorrow. He is also 
served as an editor for the Gospel Coalition and is a founding editor of Living Out, which is a ministry for those struggling with same-sex attraction. Um, as important as all those credentials are, um, I think what's most important uh, about Sam is to appreciate the kind of man that you're going to hear from tonight and tomorrow. And so I reached out to, uh, to Sam's pastor, Ray Orland, and I actually asked him how he would describe Sam if he were here tonight. And this is, this is what he said, and I just want to share this with you. He said, I would want your audience to know that Sam is a man who can be trusted. He is true to Christ and therefore true to others. There is no hidden agenda with Sam. When I am with him, I don't have to keep up my guard. I don't have to pretend. I can relax, open up, and talk honestly about my sins and failings, and I do. In other words, he reminds me of Jesus. And so I want to invite uh, Sam Alberry if he would come and share with us tonight. I feel like I can um, only disappoint you after that introduction, but um, it is a, a deep joy to be with you. Thank you, Pastors Jeremiah and David, for your invitation. Thank you for, for being here tonight. Um, I've been to Texas many times. Um, I've hardly had much opportunity to spend time in Houston, so it's been lovely to be exploring the place over the last couple of days. I'm told, I'm sure reliably, that if I'm in Houston, I'm in the real Texas, right? <laughs> so um, thank you for being here tonight. You could have been doing a rodeo or whatever that is. Um, horses or something, I don't know. Um, uh, I clearly need to experience the full Texas culture here. Um, but thank you for coming this evening. Thank you for caring about this topic. Uh, our thinking this weekend is, is about Jesus and sexuality and the gospel. Um, our conviction as Christians is that there's no area of life that Jesus is not good news about. He's good, he's good to us in every area of life. And so our default setting as, as Christian believers should be that, that Jesus is going to be good news when it comes to our sexuality. And I hope that's what we will really get out of this weekend, if, if nothing else. So thank you for caring about this topic. I'm aware when we speak about an issue like sexuality, it's an issue that is very sensitive for every single one of us. All of us have a sexuality uh, to speak of. For many of us, it's, it's an area where there's been some pain, uh, maybe some shame. Uh, maybe there are some deep wounds. Maybe there are expectations and longings and disappointments and yearnings. So I'm aware this is very sensitive soil that we are treading on. I'm also aware that particularly when we think about issues of, of same-sex attraction, when we think of LGBT friends, for many of us that is not an abstract issue. We're thinking about people that we know. I'm sure many, if not most, maybe all of us, will have someone in our close orbit who maybe identifies as LGBTQ or something similar to that. And so again, when we're thinking about a topic like sexuality, we're not thinking about some abstract issue, we're thinking about the faces of people who are very dear to us. But I'm also aware that there's a number of us for whom that will strike even closer to home. Um, maybe this is part of our own narrative as well. Um, that's certainly been the case for me. The only real romantic and sexual feelings I've, I've experienced have been towards other men. It took me a very long time to kind of recognize that and to come to terms with that. I was a, a teenager in the early 90s. It was a very different world to the world in which we live now. These issues weren't really being talked about in any kind of way at all. But I remember when I was 14, my, my best friend at high school um, started dating a girl for the very first time. And I remember it was a Monday morning. There was a gang of us kind of catching up on each other's news from the weekend. And he shared with, with the, the group of us that he had just got together with this girl over the weekend. They were now dating. And I remember everyone else being very enthusiastic, congratulating him, being very excited for him. We're English, so it was all in a very understated kind of way, as you would appreciate. Um, for us, really excited is, hmm. <laughs> that's about as far as we, that's, that's your equivalent of firing something in the air, I think. Um, and I remember everyone else being very kind of positive and congratulating him. 
But I remember smiling outwardly, but feeling really crushed inside, and I, I didn't know why. I hadn't consciously thought of my friend in any, any kind of romantic kind of way, but looking back on it, I'd already formed quite a deep emotional connection to him. And so the idea that he was now intimate with somebody else left me feeling very threatened and, and vulnerable. And as the next kind of couple of years or so went on, I began to realize I was, I was developing in a way that was quite different to many of my friends. I was at a high school in England that was just for boys. Um, and so there were only really two things we ever talked about. One was, was sport and the other was women. Um, I'm no good at sport, okay? If you pay me money to throw a ball, I can't. Um, if it's possible for your center of gravity to be outside of your body, I think mine might be. <laughs> because anything that involves balance and coordination and I'm, I'm flat on my face. So I wasn't very good at kind of talking about the sports stuff and I began to realize I wasn't very good at talking about girls either. And one of the main topics of conversation was often, you know, who, who do you like? We would go around the group and who, who are you pursuing? Is there anyone you're interested in? And as the, as the conversation would go around the group and, and come towards me, I, I would start to sort of feel the anxiety rising and I'd, I'd be thinking, I wonder if I can change the subject. Uh, sometimes that would work, sometimes that wouldn't work, and the question would still come, so, so Sam, who, who is it that you like? And in those moments, I would, I'd have a sort of a brief internal panic, and I'd sort of think to myself, Sam, just say a girl's name. Any girl's name will do. Just think of any girl's name and say it out loud and do it now. So I'd sort of think for a moment and then go, uh, Denise. Denise, yes, Denise. I like Denise. Which wouldn't get me off the hook entirely because they would then naturally say, well, do we know her? And I'd have to say, I don't think you do. No, she's, no, I don't think you've met her. She's, actually, she's not from around here. She's from Norway. Actually, so no, you won't, you won't know her or, or even know that she exists. What a strange world we live in. Never occurred to anyone that Denise is not a traditional Scandinavian girl's name, but there we go. <laughs> I had a backstory for that, just in case her dad moved there for work. Um, I should really be a novelist. But it, it, was a painful, it was a painful time of life. I just wanted to be like the friends that I had. I wanted to fit in and be the same as everybody else. And I was beginning to realize I wasn't feeling the same romantic and physical feelings for girls that my friends were. And indeed, I was beginning to realize I was feeling some of those feelings for one or two of my friends. And that was not a welcome development for me. I, I didn't need that kind of complication. At that particular time in the, in the early 90s, I knew that people in my high school were bullied for being gay. This was not something I, I wanted to be feeling inside of myself. And then when I was 17, I remember standing at a bus stop waiting to, to go home at the end of the day. And I remember just standing there, it was, it was raining, and I remember thinking, I'm gay. And those words hadn't really assembled themselves in that order in my head before. But as soon as they did, I thought, well, yeah, that, that seems to be what's going on. I don't have romantic feelings for for the other sex, but I, I do have those feelings for one or two of my own friends. And as I was standing there, I remember thinking, okay, I was applying for different universities. They were all in different cities to the one where I was growing up. So I remember thinking, okay, maybe this is something I, I hold fire on until I go to university, and then I can start to explore this. And I knew that the, the universities I was applying for in those days had what were then known as LGB societies. And so again, I remember thinking, okay, this is something maybe I can look into, start to, to think about exploring a romantic relationship with another guy when I get to university and no one at home would ever need to know. That was my plan. Um, just to age me catastrophically, um, this was before the internet, if you can remember those days. And so it was, it was quite conceivable to, to think that I could lead a double life. But in between standing at that bus stop and eventually arriving at university, something else happened which I hadn't planned for, hadn't been looking for particularly, 
which was that I, I became a Christian. Um, I had a, a, a friend at a coffee shop that I worked at on Saturdays who was a, a Christian believer. He was someone I deeply respected and, and, and liked as a friend. Um, he was someone who I knew had integrity. Uh, the sort of 17-year-olds that I knew tended not to have much integrity, but he was someone who I knew if he said something to me, he meant it. I knew I could trust him. And so he invited me to his church's youth ministry one time and said, would you, would you like to come to my church youth group? And I remember thinking that I was, I was open on the question of God. I sort of thought there probably was a God. I wasn't particularly interested in Christianity, but I remember thinking, I respect my friend. This is what he believes. It would be good to go along and find out more about what he believes. It would be a good way of honouring his friendship, finding out what makes him tick. So I went along to the youth group and heard a, a presentation of, of the Christian message and realised immediately that Christianity wasn't what I had imagined it was going to be. I'd picked up the idea growing up in, in southern England that Christianity was about God congratulating good people. What I was hearing for the very first time was that Christianity is actually about God coming to find lost people. And something deep inside my spirit recognized I was a lost person. I wasn't thinking particularly in terms of my sexuality. I was just thinking more broadly than that. It occurred to me that if God did exist, if God really had made me, I didn't know him. And I sensed that I was probably supposed to. And that this was going to be on me, more likely than it was going to be on him. So therefore, by definition, whatever spiritually lost meant, it was probably including me. And so it became significant to me that the Jesus I was beginning to encounter in the biblical gospels was a Jesus who was looking for people like me. And that he, he knew about me. And so over the, the next few weeks, I kept returning to that youth ministry, started to sort of interact with the scriptures myself. And just a few weeks later, I remember giving my life to Jesus and thinking, okay, this is someone I can build my life upon. This is someone I now want to follow. So, so there I was, I was now 18 years old, brand new Christian, having only recently kind of come to terms with, with my own sexuality, one of the big questions I had was, what does Jesus say about this? And I really had no idea. I didn't know if Jesus had to say anything about it at all. But I, I did know that whatever Jesus did say, I would be able to trust because it's Jesus. I knew Jesus well enough to know that I could trust him, irrespective of what he would end up saying on this. So I want to share with you a couple of scriptures where Jesus gives us some basic coordinates about how to think about human sexuality. Uh, lots of things that the Bible says on this, but I just want to zero in on a couple of things Jesus says in particular. The first is in Matthew chapter 5. If you've got a, a Bible on your phone, if you're under 25 and have this verse on a tattoo somewhere, you can turn to it there. It's Matthew chapter 5, um, verses 27 and 28. Uh, let me read these, these words to you. This is from a, a well-known section of Jesus' teaching. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. You may well be familiar with it. Um, Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 27, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Okay, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is, is taking a few of the Ten Commandments from the Old Testament and he's showing people how they've heard the commandment being explained to them and then showing them what it really means. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And the guys listening to Jesus, it most likely would have been a, an audience of men, they would have been thinking, yeah, we have heard that commandment. We, we know it well. We've been taught that. And in fact, many of those men, I'm sure the vast majority, if not all of them, would have been thinking, we, we not only have heard that commandment, but actually, Jesus, we've obeyed that. They may have been thinking, you know, you, you got us on a couple of those other ones. But when it comes to this, actually, we've been pretty good. Uh, those men, I'm sure, were thinking, you know, I've, I've never been unfaithful to my wife. I've never messed around with someone else's marriage. I'm, I'm actually pretty good on this commandment. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But then he says, but I say to you 
that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, the moment Jesus says, but I say to you, they will be thinking, what's Jesus going to do with the commandment? Where's Jesus going to go with it? Maybe some of them are thinking, okay, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but now Jesus is going to say something different. Maybe Jesus is going to loosen this up a bit. Maybe what Jesus is going to, is going to say is, but I say to you, you've got to follow your heart. You've got to be true to yourself. You've got to go with your feelings on this. So maybe for a split second, they were thinking, I, 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 want, I just wonder if... Jesus is going to actually lighten up on this for us. But in fact, what Jesus says actually intensifies the commandment they had heard about. Because Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their heart. Jesus is saying, listen, adultery doesn't just take place in a bedroom. Before it takes place in a bedroom, it takes place in your heart. It's not merely about external physical behavior, it's about our internal heart attitude. If I can put it this way, it's not simply about what you do with your genitals. Jesus says it, it's about what you do with your eyes. It's about how you look at someone. It's about what you do with your mind, how you think about someone. And so Jesus is saying, listen, if you are looking at someone with lustful intent, you are breaking this commandment in your heart. To look at someone with lustful intent is really to, to, to look at someone else's sexuality and to regard it as something that is there for you to consume. It's a commodity. You're turning someone else's sexuality into a commodity, something for you to take to satisfy yourself to gratify your own needs and appetites. Jesus is saying that very mentality, that reducing that other person into something for you to consume, Jesus says that is what breaks God's design for our sexuality. And the very point Jesus is making is this is what happens in our hearts. So part of what Jesus is doing here with these commandments is, is he's trying to show us God didn't give us the Ten Commandments to give us a chance to prove how good we are. That was never the purpose. The whole point of these commandments is to show us what is truly in our hearts and to show us that we are only ever going to be able to move forwards with God on the basis of His forgiveness, not on the basis of our performance. So Jesus is trying to show us, actually, all of us by nature have this kind of heart. This is what we do. We can't help ourselves. We, we twist and misuse our sexuality and that of other people. And so really, Jesus is putting all of us in the same boat here. Uh, Jesus is saying all of us misuse sexuality. He levels the playing field. So whatever Jesus has to say about same-sex attraction, in, in my case, the bigger message is that Jesus has challenging and humbling words to say to every single one of us. All of us are going to need grace and forgiveness in this part of life. All of us are sexual sinners. And if Jesus hasn't come to be good news for the sexual sinner, he's not good news for any of us. So if I can put it in these terms, no one is straight. All of us are skewed in our sexuality in one way or another. All of us have fallen. All of us have disordered desires. All of us, frankly, are a mess in this part of our lives. Which is why we need Jesus, every single one of us. But that's not the only thing we see in this text in Matthew 5. If, if Jesus is speaking about the person doing the looking, just, just notice by implication what Jesus is saying about the person who's being looked at. In this instance, Jesus is, is imagining a man looking with lust at a woman, but 
Jesus is implying that the person being looked at has a sexual dignity that matters so much to Jesus, it mustn't be compromised even in the privacy of someone else's mind. So if there's something challenging that Jesus is saying to all of us in this area of life, there's also something dignifying. There's something protective. Jesus doesn't want someone else looking lustfully at you. You may never even know that they are, but it matters to Jesus. He knows. And it bothers him how someone else sees your sexuality. And so the Jesus who is so challenging on this is also uniquely dignifying on this. We matter, our sexuality matters to him. So that's one text. Another text which we won't have time to sort of look into in, in much depth, I just want you to know it's there, is in, in Matthew chapter 15, uh, verse 19, Jesus is, is speaking. He says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Jesus is speaking in this, in this passage to the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, they were people who really did believe in such a thing as sin, but they believed that sin was somewhere out there and you had to avoid it. You had to remain uncontaminated by it. And so they had a whole kind of matrix of, of rules about things and people and places that you needed to avoid in order to remain spiritually uncontaminated. And so Jesus challenges them by saying, sin is not out there to be avoided, it's in our hearts to be acknowledged and confessed. So Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. The phrase we have sexual immorality there translates a Greek word, porneia which is where we get the word pornography from. And that that Greek word at the time of Jesus simply meant any sexual behavior outside the covenant of marriage. So Jesus is saying the bad stuff in this world comes out of the human heart and that includes any kind of sexual behavior outside of marriage. Uh, By the way, this was very challenging to the to the Pharisees and the scribes because, again, he was saying, actually, the problem is in here. He said, if you want to avoid sin, you've got to avoid yourself. But it's equally challenging to us because the message we hear in our culture today is that the way to be full, the way to be complete, the way to be authentic is to look inside your heart. To discover who you truly are and to be to be true to your heart. That's the gospel of our, of our Western culture. Friends of mine with, with young kids who have to watch more Disney movies than I do, uh, tell me this is the message of every Disney movie in the last 10 or 15 years. You've got to be true to yourself. You've got to look inside your heart, discover who you are and be true to that. What does Jesus say? When you look deep inside your heart, you don't find the solution to your angst, you find the reason for it. It's our hearts that are the problem. Well, the final text I just want to share with you you now here as we sketch out what Jesus thinks about these things is in Matthew chapter 19. And once again, Jesus is with the Pharisees in Matthew 19 verse 3. They, They come up to Jesus and we're told they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This was a live issue at the time. There were lots of different schools of thought about the right and proper grounds for divorce and, and how kind of strict you should be on that or how loose you should be on that. And, excuse me, and the Pharisees are thinking, if we can get Jesus to come down on one side of the fence about divorce and whatever he says, we can use against him. They weren't asking Jesus this question to learn from him. They were trying to trap him. So they're trying to draw Jesus out on this very controversial issue. And Jesus replies in verse 4 by saying, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So here's what's going on. Jesus is asked a question about divorce. He answers by talking about marriage. 
Jesus is saying, in effect, you're not going to understand divorce unless you understand marriage. But more than that, in the way that Jesus answers, he doesn't just talk about marriage. He talks about how we've been made male and female. And so Jesus is saying, you're not going to understand marriage unless you understand gender. So Jesus answers by saying, have you not read? And then quotes from Genesis 1 verse 27. Now, this is, is significant for a couple of reasons. The first reason is Jesus is, is actually mocking the Pharisees here. They were people who were proud of how thoroughly they knew the Bible. And Jesus is quoting from the first chapter of the Bible, and he says, have you not read? He's saying, listen, did you ever, in your Bible reading and study, did you ever make it as far as, I don't know, page one of the Bible? <laughs> But he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus says that is the starting point for how we think about all of these issues. God has created us as sexually different as men and women, as male and female. He then continues that he who created us then said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. A quote from Genesis 2. Now notice the logic of what Jesus is doing here. He says, the Creator has made us male and female. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Jesus is saying, because God has made us male and female, therefore we have this thing called marriage. Jesus is not saying that because God has made us male and female, all of us must get married. Jesus himself was unmarried. But he is saying that we can only be married because God has made us male and female. Marriage is, is based on this idea that we are sexually different and complementary. And that this union of one man and one woman in marriage is a unique one union because it is it is a one flesh union so very controversial and, and uncomfortable though it is to say in today's cultural climate but but Jesus is defining marriage as being between a man and a woman he's saying marriage can't exist without that sexual difference that's that's the basis of this marriage Now, I'm aware that that is extraordinarily countercultural. So, here are two things just to bear in mind about that, both of which we can explore in more detail over the course of the, of the weekend. The first thing to bear in mind is that one of the reasons Jesus' teaching on marriage is so countercultural for us today is because Jesus' teaching on marriage has been countercultural in every single culture, in one way or another, not always in the same way. But there will be some aspect of what Jesus teaches about marriage that will be difficult for any culture that you can think of. And so ours is not the first generation to, to feel something of an allergic reaction to how Jesus describes marriage. The second thing for us to bear in mind is that, that Jesus is not being arbitrary in how he defines marriage. It's not just random arbitrariness by which Jesus says it's a man and a woman rather than a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Because throughout the entire Bible, the union of a man and woman has been a signpost to the big thing God is doing in the universe. Right from the very first chapter of the Bible, we, we begin to see hinted at that the union of man and woman will be a picture of the eventual union of heaven and earth through Jesus. It's why the Bible begins in the way it does. You have Genesis 1, the creation of everything. It's all big scale, CGI, you know, worlds, ecosystems, stars, and all the rest of it. And then in chapter 2, I don't know if you've ever wondered at this, but we suddenly find ourselves in a garden and there's a guy and a girl and they get together. And the question we should ask is, why does the Bible begin with that? 
And the reason is because that man and woman getting together is a picture of what the whole Bible is going to be about. Because we begin to learn as we turn through the pages of the Bible that the God who is there is a God who's like a husband. A God who can't help but make extraordinary covenant promises to his beloved. And we also begin to realize as again we go through the Bible that God's people are not just his subject, they're not just his fan base, they're, they're his bride. They're his beloved one. When Jesus himself arrives in the New Testament, one of the things he loves calling himself is the bridegroom. He says, the bridegroom is now here. Jesus is saying, I am that divine husband from the Old Testament. I am that, that God who is a groom and I've come here to put some rings on fingers and to make you spiritually mine. And then throughout the New Testament, we see our relationship with Jesus spoken of as a marriage. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, just, just as the man and the woman become one flesh, he says, so too the believer is one spirit with the Lord. In Ephesians 5, Paul is speaking to husbands and wives, and he says, guys, I'm, I'm really talking about Jesus and the church here. That's what this, this has always been about. The Bible ends with the marriage celebration of, of Christ and the church, of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven as a as a bride adorned for her husband. So Jesus talking about male and female, man and woman, husband and wife being the basis of marriage is not a new idea. And it's not an arbitrary one. It's not an incidental detail. Because it becomes a picture of the gospel itself. So as a brand new Christian, I quickly became aware that all of us are sexual sinners. I became aware that Jesus says that sex outside marriage is, is morally wrong and that Jesus defines marriage as being between a man and a woman. And so early on in my, my journey as a Christian, I had a, a decision to make. Now, now that I know that, what do I do? I had a choice. I could try to explore and fulfill my, my sexual feelings and romantic longings. Or I could follow what Jesus says, but I, I was aware that I couldn't do both, not with integrity. If this is what Jesus says, I can't say that I'm a follower of Jesus if I'm not following what he actually says in this area of life. So I had a choice. Do I go for sexual fulfillment, romantic fulfillment, or do I go for following Jesus? And for many, many people today, maybe many of us in the room, that would feel like a no-brainer. If, if that's the choice, you've got to fulfill your sexuality. For many people today, that is the thing that is, is far more important in life. That is going to be the key to your own sense of fulfillment and completion as a human being. So, why follow Jesus in that kind of situation? I want to share three reasons why I did and why I do. And then we'll have a, a little break. The first reason is, is simply this, it's the obvious reason. It, it's because of who Jesus is. Uh, for many people, that decision I was making is is a choice between romantic fulfillment and some religious leader from years ago. But that's not what we're talking about. If, we, if we're putting Jesus in the category of religious leader from 2,000 years ago, we've not understood who Jesus is. And so one of the things I have to say to my, to my non-Christian friends is, listen, my life choices are not going to make sense to you unless you understand who Jesus is to me. He's not some long-dead religious leader. He's a living Lord and Savior. In fact, he's the one who created me. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. More than that, we, we realize Jesus loves us more than we love ourselves. And Jesus is more committed to our ultimate joy than even we are 
So much so he was willing to to open up his veins and and hang on a cross for us and, and burst out of a grave for us. If that is really, really true, it would be folly not to follow him. Um, A friend of mine has a a saying framed on the wall of her office where she works, and it says, those who hear not the music think the dancer's mad. Those who hear not the music think the dancer's mad. My life choices for any one of us who's a Christian, the way we live will never fully make sense to someone who's not a Christian unless they understand who Jesus is to us. He's the music. So every now and then when I'm, I'm speaking on something like this, particularly in a, in, in a more kind of secular context, someone might say to me, well, you just, you just can't have those beliefs about marriage and, and sex today. That, you, you just can't. You know, it's 2022. As if a calendar number is somehow a, a moral guide to us. So I have to say to them, well, listen, I, I, I really do get why you're saying that. I really do. But what you need to understand is that I I believe what I believe about sex and marriage because I believe what I believe about Jesus. And so what you're actually telling me to do, when you say I've got to stop having those beliefs about marriage, you're actually telling me to not be a follower of Jesus here. Because these beliefs have come precisely because I'm trying to follow Jesus and that's what he teaches me. Do you believe you have the moral authority to tell me to stop being a follower of Jesus? And most people in that situation will will say, "Uh, that's that's fair enough, I hadn't hadn't realized that was what was going on. No, I'm not going to tell you to stop being a follower of Jesus. Every now and then, though, someone will say, yeah, if that's what Jesus teaches, you shouldn't follow him. Which makes the rest of the conversation easy. Because I I can then say to them, well, can you tell me what you have going for you that Jesus doesn't have going for him that means I should follow what you say in this area of life and not him? And by the way, he's died for me and risen again. That's where the bar is currently set. If you can raise that bar, I'm genuinely interested. Now, I follow Jesus because of who Jesus is. If he really is who he says he is, it would be, well, it's a no-brainer. Of course I'm going to follow him. He knows way more about how to run my life than I do. The second reason is because of how Jesus calls all of us. I've already shown us from from Matthew chapter 5 that that Jesus really does put all of us in the same boat. So for anyone to follow Jesus is going to be costly in this area of life irrespective of what your kind of attractional patterns might be in your life, every single disciple of Jesus is going to have to say no to certain sexual feelings. It's not as if Jesus gets all the kind of heterosexual people together and says, great job, well done, thank you, congratulations, and as you were, that's great, just just carry on. And then he gets all the kind of non-heterosexual people together and goes, yeah, yeah, we've got a few things we need to talk about. Now, Jesus is saying all of us are a mess in this. All of us have adulterous hearts. All of us are going to have to be corrected by Jesus again and again and again. All of us are going to need to repent of sexual sin. All of us are going to need to say no to certain sexual feelings. No one gets everything their way. In this area of life, it's going to be costly for every single one of us in one way or another. But more than that, it's going to be costly at a much deeper level because Jesus says in in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, it's a well-known verse, you may be familiar with it. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So somebody said to me once, are you really telling me that Jesus wants me to submit my sexuality to him? And I said, no, it's way, way worse than that. He wants everything. He wants everything from all of us, and he deserves everything from all of us. Jesus is worthy of that. No area of our life is going to be improved by keeping it back from Jesus. 
So he says, any one of us who would follow him must deny himself. All of us are going to have to say no to certain profound longings in our hearts if we're going to follow Jesus. He's upfront about that. He's honest about that. He doesn't bury that in the small print. Jesus says all of us are going to have to take up our crosses to follow him. In other words, we're going to have to go through what feels a bit like crucifixion. There are going to be times following Jesus when it feels like he's killing you. For every single one of us, there's going to be something cherished in your heart that Jesus says, I need you to give that over to me. And it's going to feel like he's ripping life out of us. But as we go on in the Christian life, what we begin to realize is that Jesus is actually giving us life when he does that. When I deny myself and follow Jesus, I don't become less me. Funnily enough, I become more the real me that I was always meant to be. I become the person Jesus thought up in the first place. I become my true self. That is how I actually become authentically me. It's by following Jesus and denying self. And Jesus says that is the path to real life. So that shows me that that discipleship is going to be profoundly costly for anyone who follows Jesus. We might feel that the, the kind of the pinch of that cost in slightly different ways in slightly different areas of life, but all of us are going to feel that same cost of following Jesus. Uh, Someone came up to me once and said, yes, but the gospel's harder for you because it goes against who you really are, doesn't it? And I said, well, I, I don't think my sexual feelings are who I really am. But more than that, if, if you think the gospel has slotted in easily to your life, I don't think it's the gospel of this Jesus you've received. Following Jesus is, is profoundly costly for any one of us. And so if we're tempted to think the cost of discipleship is too high for our LGBTQ friends, I'm guessing you haven't counted the cost of discipleship in your own life yet. And I wonder if you've really started to follow Jesus. Uh, Jesus says it's going to be costly for any one of us. It's going to be glorious. But it's going to be costly. He doesn't hide that. And then thirdly, why follow Jesus? It's because of, of what he offers us. And there could be any number of things to say on this point. I just want to focus on one thing. In John 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. The first time I read that verse, I am the bread of life, I remember thinking, well, it's a bit weird. Jesus has said he's the good shepherd. He said he's the way, the truth, and the life. Those things feel urgent and necessary and important and vital I'm the bread of life I don't know what to do with that I mean well done Jesus that's that's great glad you've got that on your resume I'm, I'm pro bread so that's that's good that you're the bread of life but here's the issue for, for us I, I was out for lunch with someone the other day a waiter came over and said would you like bread for the table and we said no we're good thanks And so when we hear Jesus say on the bread of life, we think he's saying, would would sir like a bit of religion for the table? And you can take it or leave it. If you you like it, if you like that kind of stuff, you're in the mood for it at that moment, then yeah. But you don't have to have it. But in the time of Jesus, if you didn't have bread, you didn't live. No bread meant no life. And so when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he is saying, I am to your soul what bread is to a starving stomach. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he is saying, he is the only one who can truly fulfill us at the very deepest level. No one else can. 
He is the only one who can truly satisfy us. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So one of the things I, I often say to, to groups who are younger than me, I'm at the age now where I can start to say things, so, 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 to, say things to, to people who are younger than me and, and get away with it. Um, but one of the things I have to say is, if you get together with someone, if you marry someone, because you think that person is going to fulfill you, you're going to be a nightmare to be married to. Because Jesus is the bread of life. No one else can be the bread of life. And if you're trying to make someone else fill and bear the whole weight of your soul, it's going to crush them. You matter far too much. You're the weight of your soul is far more than any other human being can bear. But Jesus can. He is the one who can satisfy us at the very deepest level. Now, for those who, who marry, marriage can be an amazing blessing from God, but it can't be ultimate. It's not meant to fulfill you. It's meant to point to the thing that does fulfill you, which is the real bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Um, I'm, I'm not married. There are times when I, I would love to be married. There are times I would love to be a dad. But that's not the real win. The real win is getting more of Jesus. The real win is... Maybe in time I might become just a little bit more like him. Because he is the bread of life. He is the one that will truly satisfy every single one of us. And nothing else weighed against that can possibly compare.